First Kings chapter 16, and we're going to read verse 29 through to verse 6 in chapter 17. Verse 1, 1st King chapter 17, no, no, uh, verse 29, 1st of chapter uh, 16. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab son of Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab son of Omri did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, and he built Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of his firstborn son Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son Segub in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith ravine, east of Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. May the Lord then add his blessings to the reading of his word. I have titled the sermon this morning, <coughs> Trust God to Do as He Promises. Trust God to Do as He Promises. And the uh, preaching of the word will come from 1 Kings chapter 16 and chapter 17, the verses we have read there. <clears throat> the churches, my dear brother and sister in the Lord, and congregations in the Presbyterian Church of Australia are very different and diverse. Some are big, some are very small, some are traditional, others are contemporary. 
Some have been there since the year dot, and others are new. Some people worship in big and impressive buildings, while others worship in small timber buildings more than 150 years old. They are the faithful, the hardworking, the committed, and the industrious churches. They are those who are focused on evangelism and mission. Others focus on the social work of mercy. Others do nothing. And when we look at all of this, we must be honest and say we are losing ground. It is a known fact that in all the states of Australia, the growth of the Presbyterian Church has not kept up with the growth of the, the population. As a matter of fact, we are going backwards. The numbers are dwelling and interest in the gospel in general is fading. And that's not in the Presbyterian Church only. <clears throat> the question now is, what do we do to stem all of this? Are we going to shut the shop or wait till the last coffin is carried out the front door? Or are we going to employ all sorts of tricks to attract people into the church? Or are we losing hope? Have we lost vision in the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are the circumstances too depressing and do we seem, see gloom and doom written all over? the pages of the history of the drama called church. That is the question. How do we react in times where it seems like we are not growing or it seems like we are sliding back? The Westminster Confession of Faith helps us in this regard. It says this, The worldwide church has, be, has been sometimes more, sometimes less visible, and particular churches which are members of the universal church are more or less pure as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, sacraments administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. The purest churches under the heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ at all, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there will always be a church on earth to worship God according to to his will. Now, I'm going to repeat this last, uh, last sentence. There shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. 
It doesn't mean that the Presbyterian Church in Kerrang will be there forever. It might until the return of our Lord Jesus. But a church of Christ will be there. I'm not referring to a denomination. I'm talking about Christ's church. Will be there always to worship him according to his will. Some years ago, I attended a gathering of Christians one Friday night in a Presbyterian church in, in Brisbane. Professor Don Carson from America was the speaker. In the beginning, I wondered if people would really give up Friday night football to listen to a professor preaching the Word of God. And what an encouragement to be met by a sea of people, mainly young people, more than 800 gathered to hear the gospel. More surprising was that there was not a drum, not one little emotional chorus or emotional hip-hop, just the pure word of God. Challenging us to be faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ in this evil world. I went away walking on clouds. It is still possible, and it still happens. And in my heart there was a prayer before God, Lord, restore your church and bless the people of our congregation with a fresh, and fresh anointing of your spirit. Yes, it still does happen. And people not only go for the, for the happening of the concert in some churches, there are people who are still yearning and thirsting for the Bible, the Word of God. In the year 869 B.C., Israel got a new king. He was the son of Omri, Ahab, crowned as king over the northern tribes of Israel. And he was a remarkable king. Historians have this to say about him. Ahab inherited his father's military virtues and maintained a strong and stable government. He successfully defended his country against the powerful Armenian kingdom of Damascus, which he defeated in several battles. Ahab is the first king of Israel to come into conflict with Assyria. He is also the first whose name is recorded on the Assyrian monuments, where we learn that he put 2,000 chariots and 10,000 soldiers on the battlefield against Salmanasa III, in Karkar in 853 B.C. That's one paragraph about Ahab, a remarkable king in terms of the political and, and other campaigns that he, that he uh, embarked on. He did all of this in the reign of 22 years. And we don't know what was written on his tombstone but we know what God thought of him. It says there in the Bible, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him, and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger, and did than did all the kings before him. That's what the Bible, that's what the Lord thinks about this king. These words by which Ahab will be remembered will not fade like those chiseled out on the granite 
of a tombstone. It will remain written in the infallible word of God as a lesson to all those who rebel against God. Let's just look at some of the things that he did. He continued the calf worship as it was introduced by his predecessors. He married the godless daughter of the godless priest Ethbal and Sidon. Under the influence of Jezebel, his wife, Ahab gave Baal equal place with God. Ahab also built a temple to Baal in which he erected a wooden image of the Canaanite goddess Asherah. At Jezebel's urging, Ahab opposed the worship of the Lord, destroyed the altars of the Lord, and killed his prophets. Jezebel stamped her name on history as the representative of everything that is malicious, revengeful, and cruel. She is the first great instigator of persecution against the saints of God in history. Guided by no principle, restrained, restrained by no fear of either God or man, passionate in her attachment to her heathen worship, she spared no pains to maintain idolatry around her in all its splendor. And you could ask, what now, God? The church of the Old Testament persecuted. People are killed and the prophets of the living God are tortured. Does it concern God when things like this happen? Is God there to see the evil abounding and destruction and the church taken along in worshipping the idols of this world, even defiling the worship of the holy God with practices of this world? And we could ask the very same in our day. Does God see this? Is he concerned about what's going on in his church? And it's as if we may cry out, O oh Lord, how long? Is the church dying? And were all the efforts in the name of the Lord to proclaim the gospel then in vain? Will we have to in the end admit we were delusional and hopelessly wrong, living in fool's paradise, Believing in the spy in the sky when we die. Like uh, Professor Dawkins would like to know. Verse 34 of 1 King chapter 16 is in more than one way sort of out of place. You read about the installation of the new king. And you read about what he did and how evil he was. And then all of a sudden we read this verse. In Ahab's time, he, El of Bethel, Bethel, rebuilt Jericho. He laid his foundation at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his younger son, Segeb, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. And you wonder, what has that all, all of this, why would this word, why would this verse be included here? Can you think of a reason why it would, have, it would be included there? 
this recording of the history in the time of, of Ahab. And then in the next chapter, the whole kingdom of Ahab and his battle with, Jerem- with, with Elijah uh, continues. But then there is just this verse in it, and you wonder, what, what is this verse telling us? Does the Holy Spirit make a mistake by including certain verses in the Bible? I believe not. Is it wrong when it's put where it's put? I believe not. So what's the purpose of this? Well, there was this fellow called Heel. As a sort of a restorer of cities. A rich engineer who had to look at the ruins of Jericho and probably decided to take on the challenge to rebuild the city. You know what happened to Jericho? Can you remember still? The, the walls just imploded, and, and, and that was the first city that they took when they crossed after they crossed the Jordan. It was in this strategic position close to the Jordan River, and also because of its historical reasons. He thought it might be a good idea to restore the city. It might even have crossed his mind that it will restore some religious sense amongst the people of God to remember their history as God's chosen race. Whatever the reason, he had two sons, at least two, but he lost both of them in the process. The one died when the foundations of the city were restored, and the other died on completion of the work when the gates were restored. And you might ask, what's the big deal? Why is this fact mentioned here? I can think of two reasons. First is, God is faithful to His promises. Because there's a line in that verse that, that tells us the story. According to the word of the Lord by Joshua more than 500 years before this incident, incident Joshua, the, 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 in the name of God, pronounced a curse over the man who would dare to rebuild the city. More than 500 years before this incident. And now, even in the time of an absolute low watermark of the history of the church, God is still wide awake and faithful to fulfill His promises. No word from the mouth of God will ever be lost. He is not a man that he would lie or promise and then forget about it. God wants his church to be encouraged even in the time of persecution. The news of Heel reached Jerusalem where there were still those who have not bowed the knee before the Baal. To them it was no tragic accident that hit the house of Heel. It was the fulfillment of God's faithfulness to His people. He is alive and He is with them in His visitation of the enemy and the oppressors. Those who had read and those who knew the word of the Lord through Joshua must have heard about this fellow who dared to do against the curse what he was doing. And some might have Wondered what, what's going to happen. You know, 500 years have passed. 500 years is a long time. It's not like a turn of the page in history. You think of it, 
um, Europeans have been in Australia for how long? It's just been over 200 years. Double that and put another bit back, uh, to it. That's how long it is. And then he, man, this man went in and, and he took his sons with him. One died when he started the work. and Another one died when he completed the work and you wondered, what's going on here? And people realized God is still the God of his promises. My dear friend in the Lord, don't give up. Have you noticed the Iron Curtain came down? Well, we've almost forgotten about that. And the gospel of the Lord may now be taken into former communist countries. That wall is just a heap of rubble. There, along the wall, many Christians died because they called Jesus Christ their Lord. They are there with their Savior now in eternal paradise and happiness, smiling upon us. And also they're crying out to the Lord about what's going on on earth. Brutal leaders are gone and dead and are spending eternity in agony. But the gospel remains. The Bible is still printed, distributed, and preached like no other book in the history of the world. The politically correct of our time and the atheist, the evolutionists, and the godless in our day will vanish. And so will be their teachings. It might be, be, be replaced by other philosophies even more preposterous, but the word of God will remain. It still calls people to repentance and still hundreds of people find forgiveness in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We don't see it every day all the time in Australia. It's, it, at least not this part of the world where we live. But those who are out in the field and those who know would tell you now, like never before, ever in the history of the church, people are coming to know the Lord Jesus. And it does happen in countries that we would think it is not possible. There where people are persecuted and oppressed, there the church grows. God is faithful to his promises and he is still encouraging his church. We just need to have an eye focused upon Jesus Christ. We need to serve him faithfully, come what may, but just don't give up. Let's not have illusions about the danger of being a Christian. Standing firm on the foundation of the gospel we will face tough times. And don't think that we have tough times in Australia. Not yet. 
not as Christians. And I keep asking myself, why is that? Are we just a watered-down version of Christianity so that we don't have what the Bible tells us about being persecuted for the Lord Jesus? Or is it a time in which the Lord gives us the grace to continue preaching this gospel and spreading the word according to his timetable? In the midst of all the moral decay and spiritual degradation of the Old Testament church in the time of Ahab and his devilish wife, God called a man who would become a giant in faith. He had to face Ahab with the message of God. For this, he would be then labeled as a stirrer of Israel with the hatred of Ahab who hunted him down for years with one goal in mind, to kill him. And Elijah stood before the king. And we asked, how would he do his ministry? What would his strategy be to bring God's people back to the priority and the, of, of worshiping him and the purity of worship and to also then get rid of the false prophets who had the protection of the king and the queen. And I ask myself, how would I stand against such a mighty force? What are your chances of success? And let's, let's face it, what are our chances of success today? One man against the mighty army of not only the king, but certainly the forces of hell. Well, he didn't stand. He knelt. He was on his knees before God. And there he found his strength. We read about this in, in James chapter 5. The prayer of this man, someone like you and me, who had great power. The Bible tells about Elijah that he earnestly and fervently prayed before God that he would withhold rain from the land. This probably happened in months before he actually faced Ahab in his palace. God granted him his prayer and shut the heavens so that no dew nor rain fell. And the Baal priests can only claim some credibility while they have something to claim it by. Satan tried to tempt our Savior with the kingdoms of the world only because God established those kingdoms. But if they were not there, well, Satan would then have nothing to offer. Same here. What do you do when the, cre when the creeks and the rivers dry up and the food on the table is no more? What do you do when plant and animal die simply because they have no water to drink? What do you do when you look up into the blue sky day after day, month after month, season after season, year after year, and your God does not answer? And Elias' God did answer. How did he answer? No rain fell. So, his first tactic of survival is prayer. His second tactic of survival is trust God. 
Elijah took God on his word. He was probably aware of the fact that all the brooks and the creeks would dry up. But even when God sent him to that uh, ravine, he went. Just, ama- just imagine trusting God that he would command the crows to feed you. Now, ear crows are not as, as a, a big a problem as they are up in, 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 in uh, Queensland way. Forget about it of sleeping in in the morning, in the morning of the crows are about. They started making a, a noise with first light. And sometimes they don't stop before the last light. But these birds listen to the voice of God. And in the morning they would fly out and go and gather food and bring it to Elijah. And Elijah trusted God. Would we do that? Would we do that? Well, that's what we need to do. Trust God under all circumstances. Why? God created the birds and He has control over them. And therefore He can send them wherever He wishes with His command. And they would do that. When God's faithful people under the brutal reign of Caesar had had to do the same as Elijah hiding from the bitter persecution of the Rome of the Roman army God sent them with a vision through John with these words and we've read it this morning and it says I will give power to my witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth and I'm not going into trying to explain to you exactly what that means but it says here uh, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of heaven and earth. If everyone tries to harm them, fire comes to them. And this is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. And these men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the, uh, the time of their prophesying. And they have the power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Do you get the drift of the paragraph from the Word of God? What does it say? I'm not going to into all the detail of it, but what does it say? It says, do you remember how God fulfilled His promises to Moses and Elijah? Moses prayed and the water turned into blood. And Elijah prayed and God shut the heavens. And in the process, those who wanted to harm them had to die. Why? God protected them. And therefore, we need to understand what this means for our day too. You and I might face persecution. We might face difficult times in the leading up to the coming of the Lord. We need to trust Him. We need to know that He has given us the power of prayer to go to Him, to ask Him. And He would give us, if it is within His will and according to His plan, He will keep his hand upon his church. And we don't need to employ all the methods of the world within the church to draw people into the church for that. The only thing we need to do is remain on our knees trusting God, looking up to him and trust him that he will bring in the number of his elect so that no one will be missing on the day of the return of our Lord.
I've seen churches where people do all sorts of, of, of tricks, ripping telephone directories apart, and I, I, I don't know what, having all sorts of funny shows to, uh, to attract people into the church. I wonder what will happen if a church like that, a congregation like that, would do nothing less but just hold prayer meetings. Do you think that the church would roll, that the world would roll into to that? Maybe not. But when the Lord answers the prayer of his church, he puts an end to the work of of the devil. We have we have read about that last week. It says there in the Bible that he, the Antichrist, is held back. He's held back. Why is he held back? Because God holds him back until the time and the season for it. You can trust God to do as he promised. It cuts both ways. For his, his enemy, it means trouble. For his church, it means protection. The Bible says, Jesus Christ was preached among you, was not yes and no, but in him, it is always yes. Therefore, let us stop being negative. Let's stop being, being pessimistic. But let's start praying. Start trusting God as Elijah did, even if it means that we need to be fed by the ravens. No one can take your crown away. But in heaven's name, face the enemy and contend for the sake of the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that we could hear these words again, and sometimes even the words you spoke hundreds of years ago, words that we might have forgotten, will never, never fall to the ground. And in Christ Jesus, we know that it is so. All your promises are yes. You've already answered them. So, Father, we pray that in this time when we look up and look forward to the coming of our Lord and we know that times will get um, difficult, let us not forget that you have promised to be with your church. Amen.